I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Penn State was in the Atlantic <laughs> Tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Harley Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> All right, this is Curry Hicks Page coming to you live from New York City um, minutes after the UMass basketball finale uh, that ended uh, just now against Rhode Island in uh, dramatic fashion. And Bennett texted me immediately and said, hey, do you want to record your emotions right now? And I said, yeah, sure. So that's where we are literally five minutes less maybe than uh, from when the game ended. And I... It's weird because I don't know if it was the, like, oddly still tone of uh, Jay Burnham or weird I'm, like, not as shaken or devastated or even angry as I was, like, 20 seconds ago, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to get there in a second, but right now I'm just like, it's a weird feeling. Like the, the way that game played out and, and UMass had zero business being anywhere near winning the basketball game. And so when they took the lead, I was kind of like, I, I feel like, I don't know if you, it was Ben. Like, jump in here if you can, because I don't know if it was because I was on Twitter on, like, uh, one of my phones. I have another phone. And I was on Twitter and, like, kind of engaged in both the game and Twitter more so than even usual. Like, I try to usually wait till stoppages and play, but tonight I was just chirping. I don't know if it was that or something else. But the way that game played out, it just, it just ended. Like, it just and it was like the most heartbreaking loss, but there was no buildup. It was this weird dynamic where you kind of thought we weren't really ever going to take the lead. Then Trey Mitchell does like just stupid shit. Like just, and I mean that as a positive and not like bad shit, like just NBA isn't even the, the half of it. When he hit the step, he hit two threes and and then one of them gave him the lead. Then we lost the lead. Then he came back down and got fouled. Just calmly sank two free throws. You're still kind of like, all right, we're not going to win this game because but, – but at that point, you're like, well, we actually might win this game. And Fats comes down, and Craig just swats the shit out of him you're still like, all right, the game's not over. There's like 2.8 seconds left. And then there's kind of, I got to rewatch it, but there's this delay. And there's a foul. And you're like, and, and, and don't get me wrong. UMass got a bunch of calls tonight at various points in the game. They got fucked a bunch of times, but UMass also had some generous calls, some missed whistles where, you know, some bailouts. So, and that kept them in the game in the first half for the stretches. Like we, and, I, and I've said this all year. We get favorable officiating at home, and we get terrible officiating on the road. That's how it generally goes in the Atlantic 10. That, you know, and it's pretty much, you know, across the country. It's, it's college officials, you know, 
for the reasons that have been studied by people a lot smarter than me, you know, they, they basically don't uh, ticket home teams as much, you know, in terms of certain calls and whatever. So I, I'm not even saying that we didn't benefit from some bad officiating ourselves, but there's a, there's, there was at least forever a longstanding rule that on the last play of a game, you don't blow a whistle unless it's fucking egregious. And frankly, the, the, the prior time down when Langevin picked up his and that was a clear foul. But even that, like, you know, often will not get called at the end of the game. And I wouldn't have gone ballistic probably if they missed it because you just don't get calls in the last 10 seconds. And you would have found a way to get a shot off anyway. So to put Trey on the line there, you, it almost felt like the refs were kind of, and then it was Langevin's fifth. It almost felt like the refs were like, oh, shit, we just gave Langevin his fifth. You know, and this was the pattern all night, by the way. Every time Rody, there'd be a couple bad calls, like, that favored us, they would just find an arbitrary call again. You know, like, there was a time, like, Pierre got knocked down. There was a bunch of plays where they just, you know, classic makeup call shit, which I just fucking hate. But anyway... Langevin gets the fifth. Trey calmly sinks two free throws to take his total to 34 points in a game in which the team scored, what, 61? I mean, by all accounts, UMass basically played bad basketball. Trey Mitchell just played out-of-his-mind world-class basketball. So let's break down the final play. i I got to watch it again. I'm sure it's going around Twitter right now as we're having this conversation. But maybe there's a little body, but the block was clean as shit. And they just blew a whistle. And, and maybe it's because I'm watching on, on my phone or whatever, and I can't tell, but it felt like the whistle was a tiny bit late. That was the third chance. That was probably the, the most legit of the three final foul calls on Trey. The other two earlier in the game were just insane. One of them, he wasn't even near the ball. Like, I think it was his third where um, McCall, you know, wanted to wanted wanted on. And then there was another one. I forget his fourth, but that one was a total chance too. And Trey got away with some contact at other points, so it's not in five. So uh, this is a lot of context. The bottom line is, in terms of my emotion, when someone has a performance like what we just saw from Trey Mitchell, the rules of, of morality in sport and ethics are that the team deserves to win. But sports are a cruel mistress, and the team didn't win. And in the blink of an eye, a dramatic victory over your biggest rival on senior day in a, in a moment in which there's an energy surrounding the program and you have a chance to go to 500 after having five wins last year, uh, five, four wins last year, five the year prior, you could have literally in that instant gotten as many league wins as you had the first Hey, guys. Uh, we had a really bad jump here. I tried to recover the audio as best I could. I really couldn't. Uh, but please excuse this, like, 15-second spot. Thank you. His historic performance just vanishes. It doesn't vanish. So the performance will be remembered. But it's like, remember the kid on UNC who hit that amazing three at the buzzer to take it to overtime against Villanova, and then they lost in overtime at the buzzer. Or, or sorry, not at overtime. Next possession, the next play, literally. 
Kendall Marshall, I think, a few years ago. It's, it's a little like that, except what's so devastating about it is that I could have lived if after the inbound they threw a lob and there was a crazy tip in and it caromed off a rebound and, you know, Samba Diallo missed a box out. I, I'd be frustrated as all of hell. But UMass didn't really deserve to win the game other than Trey Mitchell's performance. And so I could have lived with it. But for the officials to blow that whistle in that moment, it, it's just, I mean, you know, this will just go down in the annals of heartbreaking UMass losses. And, and, and let's, let's do our part right now, or I, I want to do my part, to memorialize what we just witnessed from Trey Mitchell because his stat line tonight and what he did in the final four, five, six minutes of that game was, I mean, I cannot remember a more impressive performance at a more, you know, in in, in sort of critical moment from a UMass player certainly in the last two decades. I mean, Luan Pipkins had 44 against LaSalle a couple years ago. That was a different thing. I mean, that was against a bad LaSalle. I mean, don't no, don't want to take it away from him. It was a record-setting performance. He was like, I want to say he was 15 for 27 or something. You know, shot lights out, took over the game. But that was like a January A-10 game. And, and he was a volume scorer, and, you know, it was just like, go to work. We have, like, five players on this team, and we just need you to just lead us and get buckets. Trey Mitchell played against a couple. Like, Cyril Langevine, there's people who think he's a fringe NBA player that he could, you know, stick after after a rookie camp this summer. He's a big dude, a senior who plays beat. The kid Harris is a legit defender. They got some dudes on that team, Rody does, and they were doing everything to deny the kid, and no one else on our team was doing shit. We were bricking three after, and I mean wide open, wide open three after three after three. Carl Pierre, our captain, bless his heart, could not hit the broadside of a barn we couldn't get stops at critical moments. We were doing everything wrong. Everything. And Trey Mitchell, we're down like six or eight with like, we're down 14 with like nine minutes to go. We're down six with like two minutes, I'm sorry, four minutes to go. Let's, let's go to the box score really quick because I, I don't want to forget this performance because in the end, if UMass loses on Thursday, and that's a tough game against VCU, the year ends and you're 14 and 18. And that's frankly about like closer to where the team probably should be on paper right now, given everything that's gone on this year. But I just want to make clear. If Trey Mitchell's not on this basketball team this year, and you know, let me, let me just say something. I, I sometimes like sort of don't say certain things on the show because, you know, parents of the players listen and, you know, I'm cognizant that in a small, you know, program with not that many fans and not a not a mass media following, you know, people are are now listening to some of the shit I say. Amazingly enough, 
And I don't want to offend. I don't want to fuck with chemistry. I don't want to fuck with locker room dynamics. But let's just call, you know, a spade a spade here. You take Trey Mitchell off this basketball team, Bennett. And I believe UMass wins no more than two games in the conference. No more than. They I, Fordham on the road. I, I don't. I don't think that's a win. St. Joe's at home is probably a win, and you probably find a way to to to, to get another home win, which is you know everybody has a good performance kind of thing once a year. Every every team has that night. But if you look at what's happened down the stretch on this run, that almost culminated. It felt like a hardest. 500 had they not made that call. And UMass finished the season with a historic nine, not historic, a, a kind of a larger than life nine and nine campaign with seven freshmen and injuries and, and a new coaching staff. You look at those last bunch of games where they beat VCU, they beat St. Louis. They beat um, LaSalle on the road. They beat Fordham on the road. They didn't play particularly well. They defended. They stayed in the game. They battled. But let's, let's not kid ourselves. You take Trey Mitchell off that roster, and this team wins two games in the league. You take away that Fats Russell call tonight that he got on the last play, and credit the kid with making both free throws. You take that away, and Trey Mitchell is, as much as anyone ever can be at this level, single-handedly responsible for seven wins in leagues. Now, there's other factors. Preston Santos' emergence. Kabaji Walker's emergence. A couple nights when Carl Pierre did get hot. There's other things that help. Don't get me wrong. But you can, it's almost impossible to quantify his impact. And, you know, there's a word in history, I think it's like in historical scholarship, hagiography, a great fucking word for someone like me who, you know, isn't actually that smart, but like can fake it a little. Hey, geography is to, to like, it's the celebration of historical figures, you know, like to an excessive degree. And there's a tendency in sports as in life to overly celebrate greatness and, and elevate its stature and, you know, at the expense of all the things that allowed for that greatness to be, uh, you know, in place. But there's no hey, geography with this. I mean, this is, you're listening to a primary source document that someday for some fanatic of UMass in 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, will want to know who was the kid who broke all these records his freshman year. And I'm telling you, his name was Trey Mitchell. And what he did against Rhode Island tonight should not be forgotten because of the final outcome. You know, we'll we'll look down and, and, and look at, you know, the end of the season, you know, some, some years from now, and they'll say, oh, Matt McCall turned a corner in his fourth year, and he got to 20 wins, and, you know, they were 14 and 17, and 
what a turnaround and, you know, but that obscures the just miraculous performance from a true freshman tonight. The kid hit six threes. He's a, a true center. He was, he had three guys on him every fucking time. Team, the teams, we couldn't buy a bucket from deep and they were throwing four defenders in the lane sagging off the three-point line because nobody else could make a shot. And he still basically single-handedly won the basketball game, but for an abjectly horrific call that ultimately gave the game to Rhode Island. Where do we go from here? Well, you know, we go to the Atlantic 10 tournament. I'm still trying to figure out my child care situation. New VCU, a VCU team that, you know, could either be blown out in the first half or have a new lease on life. They were a top 20 team to start the year. They have a bunch of talent. Um, you know, what happens on on Wednesday, Thursday? I don't know. I hope we win. Um, we would then get Dayton, who's number three in the country, maybe number two or even number one by that point for a third time. Um, unlikely that we win that game. I mean, let's be honest. We're approaching the end of a of a long and interesting and drama filled season, and the loss tonight, as I reflect on it now, as I'm as I'm deeper into this monologue, I realize that if we don't beat VCU, unfortunately, we end the year fourteen and eighteen, and what we saw tonight is is sort of forgotten because. I don't know about you, Ben, but 15 and 17 with a young group like this just feels a lot more significant. And 9 and 9 in regular season play in the league just feels a lot better than 14 and 18. It sounds a lot better. It, it, it feels like a something you can, you know, market in the off season. And that Trey Mitchell performance tonight, if it came with a win, it's the kind of thing you can a marketing team and UMass has done a great job at this can package and just rely on for the next six, seven, eight months as they try to grow the season ticket holder base, as they try to grow the program. And, you know, maybe it's all water under the bridge, but for it to be taken away from us by a, by a call on a block by the guy who completely changed the complexion of the game by himself, who put together a historic performance, feels particularly uh, just cool. You know, the the sportsman, that's such a cliche when people say that sometimes, you know, after these sorts of games. And, you know, in our, in our little slice of the internet and our little – of the college basketball landscape, this won't mean a whole lot. I mean, the seeds were set, you know, uh, regardless of outcome tonight, we'd already secured the eight seed because VCU lost last night and we own the tiebreaker. But, you know, that's the kind of performance that can catapult a program. It's March, right? People are looking for storylines. They're looking for angles. And 
Mitchell, a center, a true freshman, burying like four threes down the stretch, it's just something you can turn into content in this world of, of just constant content. It's just a thing that stops the presses, so to speak, that you catch your breath with what you're witnessing. And, and, and it was like when he was at 26, I was like, man, kid should be the player of the year in the league. I don't care what anyone says. Then he gets the next three. And then he gets the next three. And then he gets the two foul shots. And then he gets the game-saving block. That wasn't. And you combine all those things together and you look at the struggles from the rest of the team tonight. You look at the way UMass was down like 27-10 in the first half. And you, you just say, like, we almost witnessed something that was like, we'll never forget. And I hope we do never forget it because maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe, you know, 34 points. I mean, we've seen more points. But in the tempo of that game, in a game where there was just 127 points between the two teams, for a kid to go 8 for 9 from the line, 10 for 16 from the floor, to finish with 34 points on 16 fucking shots, a college big man on a team that shot nine for 29 from three. He shot six of eight. The rest of the team shot three for 21 from three. And we almost beat a 21 win or 20, you know, now they have 21 wins, but a 20 plus win roadie team that a couple weeks ago looked like a sure thing NCAA tournament team with a group of, of freshmen and no one else playing well. Sean East, who I thought had a good game. I'm looking at the stat line. He was three for nine. You know, he had seven assists. He did some nice things, but nobody else had more than six. I mean, he had no business being in that basketball game. He shot 37% from the floor. The rest of the team, other than Trey Mitchell, who accounted for a third of our shot attempts, the rest of the team had eight field goals. Eight field goals. Eight for 32. He shot 25% against a good team. We had no business being there. Trey Mitchell took the team on his back and showed an emotionality that was unlike anything I've seen here since maybe Lou Rowe. I mean, it was awesome. So we lost. You know, at one point somebody said, guy I love on Twitter said, we don't deserve Trey Mitchell. And you know what? Maybe he's right. But he's not right. Because Trey Mitchell's going to the NBA no matter what. And what Trey Mitchell did tonight, you know, you can look at that game and you can say, hey, Trey Mitchell, um, you know, just didn't have any pieces around him. And you know what? To some degree, that's true. He's going to have a whole bunch more next year. Loaded recruiting class. More to come. That, should, that hasn't even, I mean, I, I, there's more to come. 
trust me. But what's maddening is that he, we didn't ultimately lose the game. You know, if you look at that last play, we could have won in spite of all that. We could have won in spite of the fact that the rest of the team shot 25%. We could have won in spite of the fact that we got, we gave up egregious offensive rebounds time after time, that we dug ourselves an insane hole in the first half. And I think Trey Mitchell, the emotionality we saw from him, the intensity, his his passion, if you can't understand what's happening here and aren't all in on next year, I mean, you're, I mean, you're just, I don't, you're out to lunch, man, because this kid is the truth. And you know what? For those of us who've been through a lot with this, with this program, we've been there all along, we do deserve it. We appreciate it. And I actually think a kid like that, if you went to Duke or UConn even, you know, you know, he's one of a million. He's not one of a million, but that guy comes around every couple of years. What he's doing at UMass will never be forgotten. What he did tonight should not be forgotten. I, I, and I, I, I think it's important that this episode goes on because, you know, we fucked around a lot and, and, and you, know, you know, sort of like ridicule ourselves about our passion for a program that has really had very limited success over the last almost 25 years. And so when, but the truth is we spend a lot of time talking about it, or at least I do. You know, I've said many times, it's become a part of my identity. Like, it's, it's, I, I love talking about this shit. And to have a guy like that, I imagine it's a lot of what the, the people felt with Kale McCarr last year. To have a guy like that is just like, you know, regardless of what happens, like, it's like, next year we might have the pieces where he only has to get you 14 and, and six a night. He doesn't have to do what he did tonight. So in a certain sense, what we saw tonight and what we've seen the last several games in this league is something we may not see again. I mean, his A-10 numbers, I, I think he's probably end the year close to 18 a game, but his A-10 numbers are over 20 now. For a big one, get that. I don't think people understand what they're witnessing. And I just want to say I'm thankful. I'm appreciative. It was, it was, you know, for people who've been through a lot of stuff with this program, there's something about his reliability and his steadiness and his passion to win that, you know, I just want to thank. Because, look, like, I got two kids now. I don't watch the fucking NBA until the playoffs. I didn't even really watch much college hoop this year. So, for me, like, a performance like tonight, though it didn't end with a win, you know, it meant a lot. It meant a lot. That's why we watch sports. You know, I mean, that's, that's the area you're passionate about, you went to the school, whatever. But it's nice to just watch a star. And it sucks that that game was just fucking ripped out of our fucking hearts. So that's what I got to say. Bennett, 
Um, why don't we take a few questions um, right now? Sure, let's do it. All right, so um, the sound should be a little clearer on this. I was, uh, just for various technical reasons, we jumped right in on that one, and uh, Bennett was recording. Uh, so apologies if the first part of that was, you know, kind of radio, like, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and Bennett, I hope you edit that, like, decently well, because I know I got cut off a few times, so. But there's some good material in there, so. Oh, I didn't even think we were going to do a full episode tonight, and this is turning into that. So let's just say what it is. This is the UMass Basketball Podcast. I'm Curry Hicks, age in New York City, joined by my illustrious producer in the nation's capital, Bennett Carroll. Um, we're doing a mailbag, and the program is brought to you by the fine folks at Five College Movers. Stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Are you moving anywhere? There's only one way to move. It's with Five College Movers world-class moving experience and shit maybe you're moving to the atlantic 10 tournament maybe you want them to bring your shit to the atlantic 10 tournament so you can link up with some of the core umass twitter folks who are going to be there provided i find childcare. anyway um let's get to some questions first one comes from the white walker at the white walker and it's a tough one. It's a tough one to ask. Should Carl Pierre go to the bench? And uh, this is a painful thing to talk about because over the last three years, as Matt McCall has begun to put his imprint on the program, it's not an exaggeration to say Carl Pierre is the only steady component of a very turbulent three years. Carl Pierre, the most outstanding person I can remember wearing a UMass uniform in the last two, three decades, or at least among the top two or three, an all-time kid. By all accounts, an all-time worker, an all-time student, an all-time shooter, certainly his freshman year, and parts of his sophomore year, and parts of this year. But the cold, harsh reality in Division One college basketball is that you got to make plays. And over the last several weeks... With notable exceptions, Carl Pierre's play in in conference season has been markedly below average, and that's perhaps being generous. And his performance tonight and his performance in the Dayton game at home and his performance, I believe, in the URI game on the road has been downright disastrous. The kid is a shooter. 
that's what he does. That's who he is. That's his identity on the basketball court. He's at times a decent defender, but not against top-level guards like Fats Russell, as we saw at points tonight. And that's okay. He doesn't have to be if he's shooting. When he's not shooting, it's very difficult to justify playing him for extended minutes. He was 0 for 4 from 3 tonight, and there was a few that he probably passed up. And that was perhaps as concerning as anything, because if he he's a guy who until tonight would kind of shoot his way out of a slump. He ended the game at uh, LaSalle on the bench uh, because he struggled so much in that one. I don't believe he was... He was on the floor at points down the stretch tonight, but he finished 1 for 5, uh, 0 for 4 from 3, didn't have any assists. I mean, look... He's still averaging 12.4 points, but he's shooting the ball 37%. I mean, that ain't going to cut it, Bennett, and it ain't going to cut it when you're a volume shooter. You know, we've seen that before with a guy like Dante Clark, but at least he got to the line. Um, given what we've seen from Preston and DeBaggi, yeah, you got to send Carl to the bench if he's not hitting. And I think it would defy Matt's essence and char- as a human being to bench him in the Atlantic 10 tournament. But he's got to have a quicker uh, – he's got he's to yank him quicker if he struggles because if you watch the beginning of tonight's game, I'm pretty sure he missed a couple – and was struggling, and we got down very quickly. And I was clamoring for Debaji to go in the game. It's not just because De, it's not. I, I look. I understand. I can be biased toward Debaji. It's not that Debaji's been a lights out shooter as an alternative. It's that Debaji provides you a length and a rebounding ability and ability to alter shots at the rim. His def- defense has improved quite a bit as the years gone on. He struggled in that department early. Uh, that makes him an asset at least defensively if he's cold. So, you know, if both guys are cold, then, you know, I think DeBaggi gives you more defensively. If Carl's hot, you keep Carl on the floor for 40 minutes. I mean, nobody's – don't get me wrong. But I think now the, the the kind of – we've reached the point where the slump – and actually it's more like slumps because there's been a couple games in between. The slumps have grown so prolonged in nature. You know, they're three, four, five games on multiple occasions – I have to look at the stats, obviously, to, to precisely quantify that. But we've reached the point where, you know, if he's not hitting early, the odds of him hitting later, you know, I know that, the, you know, shooters shoot and all that, and that's fine. He, he had a big-time three against uh, St. Louis late in the game after some struggles. But, you know, you got to look at the totality of a basketball game. You know, it's great that he hit that shot, but what about the other 30-some-odd minutes? So... When you have Preston Santos playing so well and um, shooting the three at almost 40%, and Debaji Walker, who even if he's not shooting the three, is giving you other things, yeah, you have to send Carl to the bench. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't start him to begin the tournament, but the reality is, 
you know, there are other guys who can perform. And I tell you what, one of the interesting dynamics here is that TJ Weeks hasn't played since, you know, the 10th game. That kid was shooting 50% from three. If he's still here, I think the whole narrative around Carl is very different because at least now you're kind of like, well, you know, we're short options. We don't have any guys who can get to the rim, so we kind of have to rely on guys to shoot threes. And, I mean, what's the alternative? Samba Diallo shoots it like, I mean, I don't think he shoots better than 15% from three. And teams completely sag off him. I mean, they're, they're playing four on five at times uh, in, in terms of, you know, not guarding the perimeter when he's on the floor. So you don't really always have an option. You know, even, you know, Preston is is a nice player, but he's not like a just, you know, TJ Weeks type lights out shooter, you know, who's, gonna, who's a volume shooter. Like he's going to take three or four and, you know, hit one or two sometimes, but he's not, you know. Uh, that dude from three. So you got, you know, I understand why Pierre has been kept on the floor, but you also have to start asking question, hard questions for next year because with TJ back and Debaji with a full off season to get his shit right, you know, I think it's very difficult to come in mid season. Um, but you've seen flashes from him and with those two there and then, you know, some really terrific freshman guards coming in, I mean, I it's just, I think Matt loves the kid so much and he's done so much with the program that it would be hard not to start him and he's your captain. But, I mean, like, I, I it's so hard. I don't want to be harsh on the kid. I, I, I It's, like, so difficult for me to say it, but I'm asked the question. I got to call it how I see it right now. And I have, I do think, see, the thing is, I keep saying, well, he's going to get it together, you know what I mean? And he does have a game or two, but, now we're 31 games in, and there's conceivably one game left. So if he gets it together and he wins two games in Brooklyn and he hits, he goes, you know, seven for nine against Dayton, and we beat the number one team in America, then this is the stupidest podcast episode of all time. And I'd be the happiest person on the planet. But you're asking me after another really disappointing performance, which included you know, a bad shot clock violation for a junior captain, that was almost more concerning than the shooting woes because this is a kid who is so aware of the game. And, you know, that was almost like, well, now what's that, you know, I mean, at an opportune moment right after a a prior shot clock violation by, I think it was Sean East who kind of committed it. But, like, at least that was a freshman. And, it you know, it, it was like right, it was just, Wow, like that's the again we had no business being anywhere in that basketball game, um, but it's kind of extraordinary to think that you know literally the kid hits one three tonight, and he had some open looks, and we win that basketball game. I mean, you know, it's hard, it sucks, man. I, I it's but I got the question so. Oh, Jake Barnes says, are the refs going to be better in Brooklyn? I mean, it's an interesting question. I, as I noted in the kind of opening monologue there, the immediate reaction um, to the game, I actually thought UMass got some very charitable calls tonight too. It's just that the most prominent one was on the final possession, and there even might have been some contact on that. I'm watching the replay now. 
I just think you never make that call if it's anywhere close with three seconds left. Like, I just, it just, I mean, you see dudes get hacked on the final play routinely and not get a foul call. So for that to, to, to be, you know, a decisive, you know, but so I, do I think they're going to be better? Um, yeah, I think there's, the neutral floor dynamic is interesting. Um, it sucks that we're playing VCU at 12 on a Thursday because they will have a couple sections of that place and they'll be loud and they'll be all over the refs. And we more than likely will not because a lot of people there thought they were going to be great. So they bought all sessions passes months ago because they were top 20 in the in the country. And it's really interesting because, as I've said earlier, like I, I do think UMass got some calls against VCU when, when it was at Mullins. And I, and I think that at times the choppiness of games has when we're on our home floor has favored us because it allows the game to open up and allows Trey to start doing his thing down low. And it's going to be really interesting watching us on a neutral floor. You know, I I think they will be better. Um, But sometimes this is a week where you don't get great refs because every team is playing. And so, you know, the Big East tournament is going to get good refs and the ACC tournament is going to, and so you're going to get, you know, bad, bad officiating, but look, that'll, that'll go both ways. And I don't think there's a unique bias against UMass. And I think, you know, that's not our biggest concern. I think it's just something we're all feeling very, very acutely after uh, that final possession. Cameron Leggy, great friend of the show. Do you, did you agree with McCall going man in the final minute after the zone had gotten UMass into the game? So this is like a great question. And one of the reasons why I said at the outset tonight, like I got to watch that game again, or if I didn't say that I should have, because just the, the, the flow was hard to decipher. I think because I was maybe too, especially engaged on Twitter and, uh, there was a lot of weird calls and a lot of whistles and, you know, we made runs and missed. It was just a weird. Was it not a weird game, Bennett? Am I making that up? Uh, I'd be lying if I said I caught the whole thing, but it was definitely uh, something was off about it from what I was watching. Like there's just a bunch of, you know, so like that's so my point is, Cam, you were watching closer than I. I was too emotionally invested to be cognizant even at at moments about when we were going zone, when we were going man. But it sounds like a valid point um you know you wonder like did they just not want to have a dagger three or did they you know because yeah the zone can deny penetration and it was weird in that the previous play i think when carl pierre got kind of taken to the hoop um it was weird because preston santos had some notably impressive defensive stops against fats russell and I'd love to see stat of Fats's line because let me let me pull it up right here. Um, Fats Russell finished the game three of twelve. I mean, for nine points. Like so, they did a good job on him, really good job. So I kind of wonder. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know if anything. Was Preston guarding on that last play? I gotta watch the whole final sequence. I, I I trust that you're you know you have some coaching experience and you know the game well, Cam. So if you're raising that, I think it's a probably a legitimate point. I know you well enough to know that you're not you know gratuitously taking shots at anybody, and so it's definitely something to examine. And I I do think that 
the mixing it up defensively has helped us. We, we deployed the press at points tonight, sped the game up at points. I mean, we did some nice things. Um, but it was such an uneven game, again, that I, I just, I got to watch the last few games because these games have been so choppy. Other than the LaSalle game, which was, UMass just played well and executed. The ways we've found to win or, or be close of late have been, they've, they've, it's not been pretty. You know, you take Trey Mitchell out of the equation, it's been like pretty ugly basketball times, shot clock violations and, you know, missed shots. And, you know, I mean, it's, so, I don't know. I, you're probably right. Um, UMass Reindeer Kid, who's becoming a staple of the UMass Twitterverse. I like this kid. He says, how do you think the team texts to that loss? I presume he means reacts. Uh, texts to that loss. Like, I, I don't know how they would text each other after that. I, I, but reacts. I mean, I don't know. This is a weird bunch. Like, And, and I say that endearingly. They're, um, they're kind of like locked in and resilient much of the time but also like don't yet quite hate to lose as much as I might like them to but oddly like because they're loose and that's a good thing I think that actually helps them that's why I'm saying oddly I think they're like they kind of like they really do take it one game at a time as, as cliche as it is it's it's because, I mean, and I say that for better and for worse, right? Like, they'll just get hammered by Richmond. And then, like, a few days later, they play great against LaSalle. And, like, they, they don't appear impacted by it at all. So I, I, I think that, you know, this time of year, it's like, let's roll the ball out and play. I think you have a lot to build on tonight. I think McCall can be like, look, we didn't even play well, guys. You shot 25% other than Trey. And you made some bad turnovers and, you know, we lost the game by one against a team that two week, you know, that won 13 games in a tough A-10. So I think there's a lot you can take from tonight. I mean, if you if you kind of as the and even now, like an hour removed from the game, I'm already starting to calm down a bit. But, you know, as you move on, I think it's like, yeah, we played like shit and we almost beat like one of the top teams in the league. So go out and make some fucking shots. You know, I mean, I think <laughs> like, and you just hope somebody does that in, in last year against GW and that heartbreaking loss at Barclays to end the season, in the first game, um, Keon had 25 points, you know, like weird shit happens in March. And so now it's just about like getting the guys focused and, you know, you worry about VCU as an opponent cause they, they are loaded with talent. They just, they're like us last year, but better, like in the sense that they stopped giving a fuck. But you don't know if they're going to give a fuck come Thursday. It's like, you know, there's there's been many times where a team like of that exact profile who's completely underachieved comes out and just blows the doors off of the conference tournament. St. Louis last year, I mean, they were they struggled in league and they just went on that run and, and like similar team, you know, a lot of athletes, they don't run a lot of stuff. It's not terribly complicated. They just come out and play their dicks off for four days. You know, they've lost to us. So there's a revenge factor there. They lost twice to Dayton. They're going to have fans there. Dayton has to fucking lose at some point. They really do. Um, and if they don't, they're losing in the, in the first weekend in the A-10 tournament. Up to, I mean, in the NCAA tournament, I'm telling you that right now, book it. So, I, I, anyway, I point all that out because, 
you said, how does the team react to this? I think we just come out and play, like move forward. And it's like, somebody's got to make a shot. Like just at this point, get your mind right, get in the gym, shoot, 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 and just get out, go out there and play. Cause like at this point, you know what the teams run, you're, you're, you're on short rest. Um, so I, I think they'll be fine. And, um, I hope they get that it's a great opportunity. You know, I mean, that's the one thing about freshmen sometimes. It's like you don't want them to be uh, deer in headlights, To which is funny because you're a UMass reindeer. Um, Patrick Fenton, Fenway 617, said the, that gym was uh, – no, never mind. That's not a question about something else. Um, Charlie Neisner, who is a bit of a, a scout in the New England scene, knows the prep world really well. He says – Top personal recruiting preferences for this year and next year. Um, well, we don't have much. I guess when he says this year, he means like for this off season. And at this point, we're full, but probably someone else leaves. So I still think. By the way, if the April, if the whole deal where you can transfer one time goes through, it's going to be bananas awesome but like completely bananas and like it could change the dynamic i'm hearing more and more that javon garcia is like an incredible combo guard less so than a pure point guard so i don't so there's a temptation to say get another point guard on the roster some will say that's nuts you have three freshmen bugs's injury is really bad i don't know what the timeline is on his coming back but it could be another season you don't know and he's not going to be like 100 percent at all so um, you know, you can kind of never have too many point guards. Like, you know, I, I have to assume Keon is gone and like he's, you know, so I, I wouldn't be opposed to getting another point guard if you, if another spot opens up. I just think like, cause with Dominguez now they have the, the other big, um, some will say a big, but the reality is like in college basketball, everybody plays four out They're, like you just, and you have Trey, like. I don't know. I think you need scorers. And yeah, I mean, like, there's a temptation to say, like, go out and get a backup center. But there's not many good ones. And, like, those guys don't do a whole lot other than give you a body to rebound if Trey's hurt. Like, Trey's going to play 34 minutes next year. Like, I mean, you can say, well, what if he gets hurt? But if he gets hurt, like, what, what? Like, you're going to bring in, like, you know, a kid who's like not because you're not going to go get a stud center. No, no legit center is going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll go to UMass where they have an all everything center who plays 36 minutes a game. So it's kind of like people say this. They have this tendency to be like, oh, go out and get another big man and rebounder. It's like, where are you going to get a good one? That dude, it, the way you get a good big. First of all, there's like no good big men left anywhere in the country anymore. Traditional bigs. It's not how the, how the game works collegiately. There's very few of those guys. The good ones are going to power five schools. And, you know, I just think you get a guy who can fucking score or a point guard because that's what wins you this in this league. Trey Mitchell perhaps being the exception to that rule because he's so sensational. But basically it's a guard-centric league. Um, for the year after, so you'll have – you'll Pierre would be gone. I mean, like – Am I making this up, or is Pierre's the only junior on this roster? Right, Bennett? I believe so. Let me double-check right now. Yeah, he's the only junior on the roster, so... 
I mean, Keon is a, ju- is a junior, but I think there's a, some, an assumption that he's gone. I mean, I don't want to say that. I, maybe I shouldn't even say that because the season's not over. But, like, it's best. For, he's a great kid. It's best for him. I mean, with all the guards coming in, he was already losing minutes this year. He'd be better off going somewhere. Like, he, And he's, he's going to graduate, I think. So, um, But if you only lose Pierre from next year's roster... I mean, look, there's always somebody who's going to transfer. I mean, so I, you have to assume there's two. But you don't want to assume much more than that. I mean, yes, there's a lot of turnover in modern college basketball, but you don't want to assume more than two. There will be probably more. But um, at that point, I don't think you need another shooter because you're going to have TJ Weeks, who's basically now getting a year back. So that's sensational. And Debaji is going to be a senior at that point. Cairo, McCrory, you have, you've got guards. At that point... I, again, I, I don't I don't want to sound like cliche here, but in this day and age, I think you go out and get the best basketball player available I'm, I'm, who fits with what you're trying to do. I'm not – I mean – or, you know what? Or you just get a guy who's like going to give you energy off the bench and be a rebounder. You know, like you know, if you, if you need a bench guy, a team first guy who's just going to – who's okay being the, you know – Ninth, tenth, eleventh man, but it's going to be a hard sell if, if if in two years if Trey Mitchell's a junior and Debaji Walker's a senior and TJ and you know Preston and I mean this team is going to be fucking loaded if things work out to plan and so you're you know who's going to want to join that um like I don't know you know but. It'd be, you know, I mean, so much of it. That's that's so far ahead, but I, I think best available player. Sorry if that's a cop out. Um, mostly underscore David. He's a good good dude on Twitter. Says, is there an actual incentive for A10 to improve referee performance? Fans will watch either way, and any effort to improve will require dollars. Yeah, I think this is a really smart question, and it kind of gets beyond. David's a smart dude, and and he's getting at. I have a feeling David has like a sort of like MBA or like, you know, sort of econometrics angle, you know, analytics type a little bit because what he's getting at, I think, is really a, a, a very relevant and good point because here's the deal. Landing 10 is not like a behemoth full of tons of money, right? And the NBA, interestingly, you should read, um, listen to Michael Lewis's podcast, Michael Lewis, who did... Um, the Blind Side and Moneyball and um, uh, The Big Short, great writer. He has a podcast. I've only listened to like the first episode, but it's all about like regulations. And it starts about basically how the NBA, after the Tim Donahue scandal, uh, the ref, the ref who was, um, you know, cheating or, or betting on games, they, you know, invested like an insane amount in, in NBA uh, officiating and they've all these systems in place and people are still like completely angry about it. They're always angry. You know, no one's ever gonna be happy with their officials, but they understood that, you know, fairness was a core, you know, the, the games had to be perceived as legitimate. And so they invested a shit ton of money in it and they have monitors of every call and basically NBA refs, whatever you think of them are the basically the most evaluated employees in the world. Like there's like 12 people 
quantifying every single decision they make. Um, I note all that because that's really expensive. The Atlantic 10 doesn't have that kind of money. And I don't even know if the Atlantic 10 has dedicated officials. I think there are guys who tend to work A-10 games. I will try to ask some people I know about kind of the the mechanics of it. Uh, I believe an official I've heard for an A-10 game makes between $21 and $2,700 a game, which sounds like a lot, but if you're doing... They try to limit them somewhat. I think they do like three a week maybe. I may be making that up. Nine grand. Uh, and I think the school, the home team, foots the bill. I'm not totally sure, but the, the economics of... Uh, officiate of, of of referee compensation are interesting but probably not to the point where the league has the resources the time or the need to kind of hold them accountable and the other thing is and i think this is just the cold harsh reality of it is like every other profession in life there's 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 great ones there's Look, A-10 officials are still better than high school officials on the whole, and it's not an easy job. But the reality is there's 350 Division I basketball teams. NBA, there's 30 teams or whatever. You know, like, they're going to get the cream of the crop. Like, those guys, and people still get mad at them. In college basketball, the A-10 is maybe the eighth best league or whatever. So you're, you're, you're talking... Eight leagues, I mean, let's say, you know, there's hundreds of guys who you're getting the, and there was one game this year, I forget where it was, where we had one of those, like, officiate and then they uh overcompensate for mistakes and it's it's not and it's so biased for the home team that gets calls don't get me wrong um so i don't think there really is an incentive for the a10 to do much because what are you gonna do i mean like these guys are you know it's just there's just not because and the the effect would be marginal right like Tonight's call is like so profound, you feel it, but the reality is like, is it worth all that investment for a slightly improved performance? I mean, I think it is because I'm not looking at the bottom line, but if I'm running the Atlantic 10, I sure as shit probably don't care. Um, and then he also asks, are students too far away to create a legitimate home court advantage when they eventually show up? Uh, far away from the court. Yeah, I noticed that tonight. It felt even farther than usual on TV. Um, but no, I mean, look, there's some things that could be done to improve the game day experience at any arena. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I would hope that folks at UMass are thinking about this with respect to when the team gets pretty good next year and more students start showing up. Uh, you know, do they want to move chairs out a little further here and there? Is it worth investing whatever tens of thousands of dollars it would take to modify the infrastructure to do that, you know, but here's the bottom line. As someone who's been watching UMass for a long, long time, when UMass is really good, the Mullen Center is fucking loud. 
watch a YouTube video of the VCU game in 2014. Like it, it, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, it, I mean, it matters maybe on the margins, but you got to get to that point first, I think, before you are that concerned about that kind of thing. Uh, Riff Raff Street Pat, my man, PVL7, says, what's the ceiling for Trey? A10 tourney aside, what's progress next year? Any postseason or NCAA tournament or bust? All right. First question, what's the ceiling for Trey? I think, I I don't, as I noted earlier, I, I, I have two kids. I don't watch as much basketball. But what he did tonight was, that was lottery pick shit. Because, and what he did against LaSalle, because he was shooting like 30% from three going into the last two games. And the last two games he's been, I have to guess, he was six for eight tonight, he had three the other night, he's probably like nine for 13, nine for 14, something like that. In today's NBA game where bigs have to step out and shoot the three, I mean, well, he passed that test of flying colors the variety of post moves he has, his strength, his ability to put the floor, ball on the floor when he has to. I mean, I, I don't think it's – he's got to get a little leaner, maybe a little quicker. But, like, he feels like a lottery pick. Now, how you use him in the NBA is interesting because there's some centers who are bigger than him and, you know – He's he's not quick enough to be, like, a guard guard. But, like, dude's got some Al Horford. He's got a little bit of, like, dare I say it, like, really poor man's Dirk. Um, I mean, he does a lot of different things. And if he can continue to shoot the ball, I think at least a top 20 pick by his junior year. I really do. I mean, a lot can happen. A lot can change. But he's so polished around the rim. You know, I mean, like, you got to be able to finish in the NBA. You watch the NBA, and you're just like, some people are like, oh, they don't defend till the fourth quarter. And there's some truth to that. But dudes just make shots. Like, they're just fucking automatic. And tonight, that's what he was doing. Like, there was no way to guard him. And so if he can score in that variety of ways, I really do think his ceiling is, like, top 15 pick in a couple of years. Um... A-10 tourney aside, what's progress next year? So I've been thinking about this a lot because I actually think that, you know, what we've seen this year with, like, VCU and Davidson, who are both preseason top 25 teams and widely regarded as, you know, the top two teams in the league with with Dayton as, like, maybe the third team, shows just how hard it is in the Atlantic 10 to achieve expectations I mean, Matt McCall always says it, and it's a little bit of a cliche, but it's true. Like, play, And that's what happened a little bit last year. Playing with expectations is a totally different dynamic. I really do believe that psychologically. And there's going to be expectations for this team next year. And, and I want to say that to have a special season and make the NCAA tournament in the Atlantic 10, it's hard. A lot of shit has to go your way. I think people have this tendency to think like, oh, you got everybody coming back. You had some really exciting moments last year. Um, this is the breakthrough year, like, you know, tournament or bust. And it's like, pump the brakes a little. VCU had everybody back. 
from a team that was 16 and two in conference and was an eight seed and had everybody back. And they're like, they finished below us in the standings. You know, Davidson had like basically two league player of the year types and finished barely got, you know, eked out a 10 and eight in league. And, and, you know, so the ceiling is, and meanwhile, Dayton, who is not ranked, is maybe the number one team in America on Monday. So you can go both ways. Um, and, you know, Michigan State, who is number one in the country, is like top 25, you know, barely top 25, right? Like the kid's brother died and thing, you know, and they had some close losses. And then, you know, one thing happens, you know, there's so much that can go on, especially with 18 to 22 year old kids. There's just so little you can count on, you know, and the transfer dynamics and the portal and chemistry. And there's so, you know, I mean, everybody and their mother is going to be like making a run at Trey in the sketchy ways that, you know, the college basketball landscape exists because why wouldn't you? He's fucking awesome. So, but, but the ceiling is very high and I'll tell you one of the reasons why the ceiling is really high because right now, preliminarily things are looking very favorable and it's early, very favorable from a scheduling perspective. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. This year we had all freshmen, basically no debaji and a preposterous schedule from games six through 11 that didn't derail our season, but made it very hard to to continue the momentum we got out of the gate. I mean, every one of those teams was really legit. And if not really legit, really legit. I mean, Virginia is now like in the running to win the ACC. Yes, they were young and whatever. St. John's like had some nice wins in the in the Big East and, you know, had some players, Um, you know, South Carolina has had some big time wins. Uh, Harvard and Yale are, you know, both vying for the Ivy League title and one of them will go to the tournament. Fucking Akron had like 22, 23 wins. So even some of those teams that you thought were like borderline. Rutgers, historic season, first NCAA tournament in 30 years. Um, So you just ran into buzzsaw of a non-conference slate. And you had Dayton as the number one, you know, number top five team in the country twice. You had St. Louis, who's a 20-win team twice you had Bonaventure on the road you had Davidson on the road you you know you didn't really catch a lot of breaks in this in the A10 schedule either um next year if you think about it I, first of all one thing to watch I think so we'll do conference first I think Schmidt from um St. Bonaventure if BC doesn't make a run at him this offseason, that's criminal behavior and their athletic director should be imprisoned uh, and their board of trustees should be imprisoned. Mark Schmidt is a fantastic coach who has done unbelievable things in Siberia, excuse me, Olean. And he's an, a BC alumni who's like in his late 50s. If they don't just throw the fucking store at him and try to throw, you know, triple his salary and get him for 2.1 million or whatever it is, they're nuts. Now, if they do, and he finally takes it, uh, finally leaves, and he's done everything he can do in in Olean, let's be honest, even though his team is loaded next year. But if they do, 
all of a sudden a team that would be loaded next year at Bonaventure, they're never the same when there's a coaching change. I mean, yeah, somebody will see that as an opportunity because they have a, like their whole top seven dudes back from a solid team this year. But you know how that goes, Bennett. When there's a ter- when there's change in coach, they're just not quite the same. Furthermore, they'll be playing in Amherst next year. So again, I note that because these are the games you have to win to go from being like the sort of 17, 18, 19 win team that everybody knows we already have the talent to be to becoming the 21, 22, 23, maybe 24 win team that you have to be to get into the NCAA tournament. And the line between that is so shaky. You know, it, it's it's so tenuous, I should say. You have to have things go right. And so I'm already thinking about these scenarios in advance of next season because I'm cognizant of the fact that that's what it's that's what's encouraging right now is the particulars of the schedule. So that's one thing with Bonaventure. If that if that breaks, even if it doesn't break, you still have them at home. Richmond, who's loaded, will make the tournament this year and bring back an epic starting five, but not much of a bench, as is always the case down there, is coming to Amherst next year. Again, you get a tournament team in here coming up on three days rest or whatever it is um, in Mullins with, with the enthusiasm that's around this program. You saw it this year. This is a completely different team at home. I mean, I think they went like 11-5. and five. They had a one-point loss to Rhodey. They had a four-point loss to South Carolina. They had an overtime loss to Yale, and they had a they had the one bad loss to GW, and then the only other loss was Dayton. I mean, so, like, UMass, can very conceivably, that's a win next year, right? Same thing with Rhodey. And Rhodey's losing dudes. Rhodey's losing Langevin. They're losing Downton. Yeah, they have Fats back. It ain't the same team. Um, so you definitely win one of those games next year. Um, Richmond coming in. Now, you do go to Duquesne, but Davidson, losing guys and, come, you know, key guys and coming up to Mullins next year. That becomes a very conceivable win. So the ceiling is high. And by the way, Rutgers, who brings back a lot from a tournament team but loses a couple pieces, is coming to Amherst. That's a big-time thing when a Big Ten program comes into the Mullins Center who's coming off of a tournament berth. That's, you know, and like South Carolina this year, right? Same scenario, but you're with all freshmen. Next year, you can't tell me we don't give a hell of a game to Rutgers at home. I mean, like, and maybe beat them, right? Like, so, and then Yale, who's not as good next year, but will probably be a tournament team uh, or, you know, or at least losing the Ivy League title game. Yale... We play at Yale, and I'm telling you right now, that's going to be a de facto neutral site game or even UMass home game. It's in New Haven. It's close. It's, you know what I mean? Like, so, and that becomes a road win, right? Like, so, you know, I think there's a lot of things next year that it can break borderline power five type teams who are very beatable like maybe wake forest might be in it somebody like that so there's a lot of opportunity to do some damage next year um i do not think that it's nca tournament or bust um i do think it's uh nit or bust i think you have to get over the hump and i think in a certain way mccall is probably uh, the unfortunate beneficiary of his own success late in this season, because I think that, you know, 
these close wins over St. Louis and VCU and, you know, have given fans uh, a window into just how close we are to kind of getting over the hump. And again, if, it would have been even tougher for him if we won tonight because you go 9-9 nine and nine, and now you, you kind of got to get like 11-12 in league. Um, so, but I, I think it's still NIT or bust because you know, you you still are going to be heavily reliant on freshmen and sophomores. I mean, you have one senior. Um, now, it's interesting. You never know. Maybe maybe you get a fourth, uh, a, a fifth-year guy who's really good who comes in, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're a fringe tournament team, but I don't see that happening. So, um, yeah. Um, so, but progress next year, I mean, I think, yeah, you got to get to the NIT. So, I think you got to get to – 19 wins, 20 wins, including a 10 tournament play, which, I mean, if you think about it, right, like, we should have won the Yale game, we definitely should have won the St. Louis road game, should have won tonight, some would say we should have beat South Carolina, I mean, right there, you got, you're at 18 and 13, with just, like, a few plays going your way, but again, that's not, I mean, there's games where we stole, too. But I'm just saying, like, it's not unreasonable to say you should have four or five more wins, especially if your non-conference has, let's say, three more easy games than it did this past year, right? So, like, three there and then, like, three more in the league, and that gets you to 20 right now. Um, but, you know, it's early. A lot of shit can happen. Um Jason Levitt, Jay Levitt, 08. A lot of chatter tonight. I mean, I'm, I'm loving it. And this is an important episode. I, I wanted to do like a, and I actually may do a Stu Ludicky pre-A10 tournament episode. Like, and just do content all week. We're going to have, there's going to be some other surprises in Brooklyn. I'll say that. But this is a necessary episode. I, you know, sometimes you just got to rock and roll. So appreciate you sticking around, Bennett. Who's gone next year, he says. What's the floor and ceiling for next year? Are you confident we will have anyone next year who can knock down the wide open threes we are getting now? If so... Does Trey average over or under five assists per game? All right, let's go with the first one. Who's gone next year? Well, DeGiri's gone. He's graduating. Cy Chapman already left, so you get that scholarship. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, to think of if he had come into his own, what, what we might have been like tonight. You know, just tonight in particular, where we, just a couple rebounds would have changed the game. Uh, even DeGiri tonight would have changed the game. Um, so I, I said earlier, I think Keon is gone. I think CJ is gone. I mean, he hasn't played at all. And we already have three signed, so we know one, at least one of those two are gone. I, I suspect both, and then we get another. Um, he's also asking, what's the floor and ceiling for next year? Uh, the floor is like, I mean, honestly, you, like, it's really bad if you don't get to 17 regular season wins. And that's before the Atlantic 10 tournament. Like, that would be, to me, the floor. Like, you got to go three games better than this year, given how easy the schedule, how much easier the schedule appears to be. The ceiling, I really do believe, if the schedule shakes out the way it could, you know, and timing of the schedule matters too. Like, this year we had a week to prep for Dayton, and that's why in part why we played a respectable game against them. Um, the ceiling, I mean, you don't want to do this because, like, I don't want to set the narrative and then it be considered egregious. 
But the ceiling is 25, 26 wins. I mean, like, you got to be ambitious, right? Like, this year it was kind of like, if you're doing a six-game range, it was like 12 to 18. Some would say like 11, probably more realistically like 11 to 17, given the schedule. So next year, like, 17 to 23 with the – and then the ceiling's a little beyond that. I don't know. Ben, what do you think? How many How many wins can they get? Like, can they – like, so you got to see the schedule. But there's a, there's a universe in which they come out hot. The press is working. They're deep. They've got – an all-everything guy in Trey, and they fucking blitz through the through the non-conference with a win over Rutgers. They win that Jamaica tournament, and they're like 12-1 and one entering league play. Like, that's not inconceivable. I got to see the full schedule because there could be some – like, you might get Providence all of a sudden or whatever, you know, like – so let's – so, like – and then and then A-10 play comes, and if the Schmidt thing happens and some other stuff I'm talking about happens – 13 and 5 is not out of the question. This roadie team went 13 and 5. They're not great. Um and that's fucking 24 or 25 wins. Now, realistically, it probably you, you maybe you go 9 and 4 and then you get you know 11 in league. But you damn near got 9 this year. 10 if you count that St. Louis game. I mean, 11 is not out of, you know, so that's 20, I think, that's, like, very, you know, realistic. You're looking at realistic. You win one or two in Brooklyn. You know, so I'm saying if you if you bang out 11 and two and then you get 12 in league, kind of, you know, one more than maybe you should. It's 23. You win two in Brooklyn. It's a fucking 25-win team. 24, 25 win team. So I, I really don't think it's crazy to say that the ceiling is 25 wins. People will say I'm nuts. You don't know how hard that is. I get all that. I get all that. And that's why I said 17 is possible too. Very possible. But it's not crazy in my mind to, to, to say that, especially, and, and like, look, this is the Trey Mitchell high talking a little bit too. But the rest of the team shot 25 fucking percent. And that's not going to happen next year. A lot of pieces next year coming back. TJ Weeks has not played for 20 games. Do you understand that? He was our leading scorer. He hits one fucking shot tonight. We win the game. So don't tell me it's egregious to think we get 24 wins. It's not. Um, He also says, are you confident we'll have anyone next year who can knock down the wide open threes we're getting now? Yeah. TJ fucking Weeks. You forgot him too. Kid was hitting 48%. Leading us in scoring. 10 games in. He, at Rutgers, he had 19. Trey had like six. He was getting banged by everybody. You get no calls on the road. He was a freshman. TJ Weeks was banking in threes from 29 feet out like a fucking maniac. It was awesome. Um, Yeah. So him, absolutely, yeah. He's the one. And hopefully Carl gets his mojo back. Mostly David checking in. Oh, uh, oh then he says Trey... No, Trey will not average over five assists. I mean, just I just don't. He could. I mean, he's an unbelievable passer for a big, but like I just that's a lot of assists. I mean, that's like 
a lot for a point guard. He could get like 3.7 though. Um, David says, uh, mostly David says, I may have a selective memory, but I don't think he's been that bad. Oh no, he's talking about something else. Sorry. Um, let's see. And if TJ is healthy all year, our record is blank. That's PVL seven. So, uh, it's hard to say with, with that, something like that. Cause it's not like a tray where you run the offense through him. It's like a critical piece that gives you an incredible weapon, but it's not like the whole war to continue the really tortured uh, military analogies here. I think you win like two and a half more because it's not because there'd, there'd be one game where he would just take over and just do crazy shit and win. But they won some of those ugly games without him, and those wouldn't change. So there'd be one of those where he just, like, took over, was lights out. And then one or two more where he just hit a big shot, like tonight, you know, where he just, like, made the shot you needed to keep us in the game. Um, So I, I think maybe, you know, two or three more. So instead of being... 14 and 17, you know, you're 16 and 15, maybe 17 and 14. Zach is God says, convince me to take a personal day Thursday to go to Brooklyn for the basketball game instead of a personal day Friday to go to Amherst for the hockey game. I'm not going to make that case. I'm not because, look, I mean, hockey, I mean, I I would for your family, it's closer, it's easier, and you might want to use hockey stuff when they get, if you can, have more days. You go. You use the hockey game, uh, the hockey one for uh, like when they get to the tournament or to uh, to the TD Garden. But this year, with a 14 and 17 team of predominantly freshmen against a preseason top 20 team, you know, I, I'm not gonna make the case for you. I'm, I'm just not like. I get it, the hockey thing. I get it. It's what they're, and I think by the way, I was thinking about this because I'm not a big hockey guy, but. Y'all like, there you go with that weird tendency to use a southern phrase, but y'all don't like aren't appreciating that this hockey team is still really fucking good because of last year being so spectacular. I think there's already like a hint of people being spoiled. The hockey team is still competing for like what a number two seed, Bennett, number three seed. Yeah, they're in the top ten or so. So like, you know recognize that what they're doing remains historic and take advantage of it. Cause you know, I think people just have this expectation like, Oh, Carvel's going to be here forever. And like, don't have that expectation because you know, we saw that with Calipari and you know, he was eventually gone and you don't know when it's going to end. And an NHL team could, could quintuple his salary overnight. Or what is it when you 10 times something like, Oh, sex double six, isn't it? Sex double, it's D E C is the the prefix. Uh, des des, I don't know. But the point is, like, appreciate it while it's going, and then next year, figure out getting to D C for the tournament where Bennett will be. Um. In my job, so excited. In your what? I've I've tweeted this out that like I'm sitting there thinking, what, two years from now, what this team could be. 
and I can get there from work. Oh. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I mean, I'm already, I got to start planning that because I have my, my sister-in-law's down there. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm hyped. Um, so Joel Southerl, good dude, good friend of the show. He says, can you talk me into a pathway for UMass <laughs> to the A-10 tourney title? What needs to happen and who do we need to play? And this is a great – like, I love these questions. This is, like – this is why the show is fun because, like, it's a preposterous question on its face. But here we are, almost two hours removed from that devastating loss, and we're calming down, and we're like, you know, this is a perfect question to just – for, like, a long mailbag night. Uh, it's just a great end-of-season question because let me just say I, I always have – as much as – as closely as I follow this team – Every single year when we get to the end of the year, I have this kind of like just morose sadness that I'm not going to have this thing for fucking eight months, especially now where I don't follow other sports nearly as closely as I once did. And I have two kids and my wife is probably thrilled the season's ending because there's like so many nights that have been occupied with postgame pods or tweets or fucking whatever. And... I'm like having those moments where it's like, oh, what did we even do this year? Like, what what was our team like this year? Because this team in particular has had a lot of phases, you know, like you've had good, bad, ugly, you know, it's like a strange year in that regard because there's been some real lows this year and then some really cool highs. But the point is, this is the sort of question that like keeps the season feel like it's still not quite over yet. It gives you a little more hope and it makes this the week coming up a special one. Here's the scenario. You beat VCU because they're checked the fuck out. They've lost like six of seven. They look bad last night. They, you know, and they just stay indifferent and and kind of injured and done with their year. And you win the first game. And then there really is a universe. I really do believe there is a universe in which Dayton loses the game. Now. Number one, as our friend Sully, my good name, longtime guest and Dayton guy, has pointed out, Dayton is a perennial disaster in the Atlantic 10 tournament almost every year. Now, it's a different group of kids. I get all that. But that specter haunts their fans. And this is obviously the year where they're exercising demons and breaking curses left and right. But I actually believe, and I've said this all year, Dayton has to lose a game before the NCAA tournament if they want to make a legitimate run to the Final Four in Atlanta. We've seen this time and again with teams, at least anecdotally. I don't have all the research. St. Joe's, 2004, ran the table. They were like 31-0 or 30-0, 29-0, whatever it was, entering the A-10 tournament and lost on that Friday. Um, then they went to the Elite Eight. UMass in 96 when they were undefeated lost to GW in like the very at the very end of February then got their shit together and rolled in the A10 tournament and got to the final four but i think when you've won that many in a row there's a sort of like psychic you know like your your the the, the galaxy you just it's different i don't, i now maybe they roll and it doesn't matter um and it's a Gonzaga deal from a couple of years ago where they just like won every game and got to the national title game like that happens too but, I mean, we played those guys tough in Amherst, and we shot four for 20 from three. And we almost, like, we kept it very respectable. 
if Mitchell's shooting, you know, I mean, if we get hot and they start pressing, you know, like I don't mean pressing like full court pressing, but psychologically pressing. Everybody in that gym who's not a for Dayton is going to be pulling for UMass, and that's where March gets special. And all of a sudden, like there's a scenario in which Sean East, you know, he has that touch sometimes. You know, he's hitting floaters and like you just never know. And he and Trey are playing a two-man game, and Debaji is hitting some shots, and the floor is opening, and all of a sudden Carl is hitting. There's a universe in which, you know, you enter halftime, and you're up four, and then, like, Obi Toppin picks up his third foul early, and all of a sudden Dayton fans are getting restless, and the fans waiting for the next game are on their feet cheering for UMass, and there's this, like, craziness in the building. That's what March is all about. UMass has nothing to lose. They're playing with house money. Trey Mitchell, he's on a big stage now, and, like, he's ready for it. I mean, I didn't think he'd have another great night against Brody after going for 30 30 against them the first time. He fucking finished with 34 tonight. He had 26 against Obi last time. Who knows, man? Who knows? So you win that game somehow. Now you play in the semis. Remember, you're that's the one that's the one advantage of being on the better side of the bracket because you don't face the two or the three until the final. And the four, uh, who won? Like, who's? Do you have the seedings? Because the game's probably just ending. Yeah, uh, the, the uh, channel account tweeted that I had it a minute ago. I'm trying to find it. So, like, I think it because. Because Rhodey avoided it by winning tonight. So St. Louis is the four. Um, I mean, come on. St. Louis, Travis Ford, that's a team we match up really well against. And, like, they're not going to bring fans. Like, people would be rooting for us. They won it last year. They've kind of had their moment. They're young and, like, they're strong and tough. They could beat us by 50. But they're also a team we can beat. We did beat, and we should have beat them a second time. Um, there's also a distinct possibility that they would lose in the 4-5 game against Bonaventure. Um, I don't really want to play Bonaventure in Brooklyn. They've got, you know, I just don't love that. But St. Louis, give me them in a rubber match. You know what? Fuck it. Give me Bon. Uh, no, I don't want Bonaventure. Bonaventure, they run too much complicated offense. We, we're not going to be prepared. St. Louis... It's a roll the balls out and play kind of team. Like, they're not terribly structured. They have athletes, but we could beat them. Um, so then you go into the A-10 final. So you win that game by 10. You have a great performance. It's an ugly game. It's like 70 to 60. You just hit some threes and you ride Trey for 23 and 9 and you kind of eke it out. You get to the final and somehow Richmond has been upset, which is not inconceivable. And they've been upset by uh, either GW or Davidson. Like, that's where you need some magic, because we're not beating Davidson or Richmond. Like, I'd rather play Dayton. I kid you not. So we're going to say GW, like, wins uh, uh, two games. They beat Davidson. Oh, wait. What is Duquesne? One, two, three, four, five. Duquesne is six. All right, so, like, you get to the final, and Duquesne has already beaten Rhodey. And they're in the final. And, or no, fuck it, dude. Rhodey's gotten by Richmond. And you play Rhodey for the third time and you win. 
There it is. You beat a preseason top 20. You beat the number one team in the country. You beat your ex-fucking rat fuck of a coach. And you beat your rival because it's impossible to beat a team three times in a season. Everyone knows that. And you have the most historic run to the NCAA tournament in the history of UMass basketball. You finish 18 and 16, and you get a 14 seed on Selection Sunday. And I am literally on the floor of the Barclays Center dancing and cutting down nets with the team. I have one around my neck. By Sunday, I will have given the team speech before the game, emphatic speech that's going to go viral. It's going to be all over CBS and ESPN and Barstool, and I'm going to be sort of like the sister Jean or whatever uh, of the NCAA tournament. Remember the 102-year-old nun from Loyola? She's still alive. Okay, so I'm going to be her after the epic speech. I'm going to come out you know, as the real me, and it's like whatever. And Or actually at that point, it's sort of like – under Armour or Adidas is going to give me like a special mask to keep me, you know, it's going to play into the shtick and it's going to, pl- you know, it's like it's, people still won't know who I am. Of course, everyone will. But um, and, and UMass is going to lose by 36 in the first round of the tournament. So that's how it's going to play out. Um, and this very speech right now is going to go hugely viral because people are, are going to be like, holy shit, he called it. Listen to this. And it's like that's going to be the story. Um, oh, I'm, I'm gonna make a whole graphic of this once, once it happens, and we will blow it up. Please, please. Um, Riff Raff Street Pat, another question: Is the A10's best chance at multiple NCAA tournament teams to have UMass cutting nets in Brooklyn? Uh, well, UMass or somebody else. I think Richmond needs to get to the final. Somebody's got to upset Dayton and then win it. And I think the teams that could do that realistically are probably Davidson that come, could come out of nowhere. St. Louis has the athletes. Duquesne has the athletes. Um, and Rhodey, maybe. I mean, like, there's a scenario in which Fats Russell has, like, a Kemba Walker-like tournament a la 2009 or whenever that was and just, like, goes bananas because he's awesome and he could, you know, he could go, he could, he could be the dude. Um... Was Femi at the game tonight? I have no idea. Mike Raposo asked. I don't. I don't know. I don't know, dude. But if anyone knows, let me know. Tim Robertson says, "Why do ATO plays look bad after timeout plays?" Uh, I'll be honest. That's another thing I didn't really catch tonight. Um, they were great McCall's first year, and the after timeout play for Trey that got him that layup was gorgeous. But I think part of it's like at this point in the season, teams kind of know your stuff and. You can't pull too many tricks out of the bag. And also, I think UMass has gotten better this year since they've gone away from some of that stuff. I don't think – I think after timeout plays are great, but I think if you're spending too much time working on them in practice and guys aren't just playing, you know, I'm concerned. And I think we've gotten better as we've given kids a little more freedom, uh, much like we gave Pipkins in McCall's first year. He kind of went away from some of the probably the more rigorous – play calling he'd like to do um and it's worked to a degree i think getting debaggi open in space and preston you know kind of getting put backs and everything like and just going to trey uh you know probably less emphasis on ato and it's just, so it's not a primary concern of mine right now but uh i also have to look to, to confirm um you know if that's the case because i gotta look uh if, if they've been that bad I, I trust you though that they have been 
Uh, Mount Tom 22, great dude, follow him. Can you go over numbers regarding incoming class and spots available? We So we just did that actually. We have Baptiste and Chapman spots, but did I miss something or do we still have KTM spot available? Good throwback. Uh, Kalea Turner-Morris, I believe, who was not on the team this year, I believe re- got some sort of medical, I don't know all the terminology and the mechanics of it at the NCA bureaucracy, but I think he's okay and it's not counting against our scholarship limit. So uh, we're okay there. Um, VCU Lido's good VCU fan says, you didn't see Marcus Evans in the regular season. I'm telling you that matters Thursday. Where does that rank on the doesn't matter to holy crap scale for you? I'll be honest, I didn't realize he was back for the A-10 tournament, and that fucking sucks because he's really fucking good. He's also a senior who's been hobbled by injuries, and this is his moment. And now that I know he's coming back, I'm already scared he's going to go for 37 points and then not only beat us, but beat Dayton. And I'm having deja vu as I said this. Like, I've said this somewhere else. Uh, I swear I've seen this scenario playing out, and I'm terrified. Um... Sloven, if UMass wins on Friday, whose couch would JB Mills 14 and I be crashing on Thursday night? We really don't even need a couch, honestly, just a place to park and sleep indoors. Now, I don't know about you, Bennett. Let's just give the listeners who don't follow UMass Twitter, and believe it or not, there are a surprising number of them. So I try to keep the show at least somewhat not focus on the complete esoteric elements of UMass Twitter. But... Eli Sloven, senior in high school, Amherst Regional. His friend, J.B. Mills, 14, I've learned over the course of the years, year, is a star quarterback at Amherst High on his way to play football and baseball at the University of Rochester and is the son of longtime Amherst College football coach E.J. Mills. E.J. Mills, who's been there pretty much since I was a kid. I think he might have been a defensive coordinator when I was a kid, and they had another guy who went on and became a football coach at Yale, but that's irrelevant and just a weird piece of knowledge that came out of my brain. Um, Mr. Mills Sr., the coach at Amherst, is a Dayton alum, I think Eli explained to me. So J.B. Mills, 14, huge Dayton guy, and obviously it's a historic moment for Dayton so anyone in this part of the country who's a Dayton fan is going to want to be there so there are a couple high school kids looking for uh you know a little hooky day which I respect I went to the Patriots Super Bowl parade my senior year of high school uh which crazy enough was 16 years ago which is fucking bonkers um so I get it good impulse but Bennett, are you reading this as a slightly backhanded attempt to sort of say you can crash on my floor to me? Are you reading it that way, or am I being he a little? Is, he is asking you if you have a place for him to stay, and if you don't, do you know anyone who does? Yeah, it is definitely you first. So I'm going to be candid here. Um, distracted diner, a great friend of the show, has crashed. Uh, friend of the show has crashed at my house. Um, four A-10 tournaments in the past. I want to say that was like, I don't think it was like our glory year, but it might have been 15. It might have been 14. Holy shit, if that's been six years, wow. I don't know when it was. Um, he crashed here, no problem. Um, I didn't have kids at the time. The thing is, I grew up with him and we're two years apart in age. Sloven, I've played golf with him, great kid, don't get me wrong. 
UMass Twitter fixture, respect everything about him. He's 18. He's a senior in high school. And the social dynamics inherent in inviting a 18-year-old who you don't know that well in real life. Like, I know he's a responsible kid. I don't, he's not really a drinker, so I'm not gonna have to worry about those things. And like, Mills, you know, son of a football coach, his Twitter bio is kind of like, sort of has a Catholic orientation, you know, straight edge type kid. So I'm not like worried about them from a responsibility vantage point. I'm more worried, A, my wife might just be like, are you fucking kidding me? You have a three-month-old and no spare bedrooms. We have a couch in our living room, like, but he's 18, like, what? Um, I'm more concerned from the vantage point of, like, their parents and what that dynamic is, because I'm happy to do that. You know, I really would. Like, I, I don't give a shit. Like, I, I you know, my homie is your homie, whatever. Like, we're all cool. But it's like, you don't sign a permission slip, but it's kind of like, let, let me, let me my, my longtime professional mentor, who happens to be a diehard Fordham fan, by the way, and that's one of the reasons we became close friends. He said to me once, and it's one of the most, and this for you younger guys listening, I, I don't like to toot my own horn because I, I don't have shit to say half the time, but this is a little piece of wisdom that you want to file away somewhere. He said to me once, whatever you're doing at a given moment, no matter how benign it seems, ask yourself, if I were to die right now, how would the rest of the world perceive it? This is a brilliant kernel of insight that speaks to a lot of deeper truths in the world. And Basically, you know, so I've thought about this in the context of, uh, you know, I'm hanging out with a female colleague from work. My wife knows there's no problem getting a drink after work. We work together. We've known each other forever. Like, but I'm having the moment where it's like you're at like a dingy bar near your office. And oh, and let's say and your wife's away. She's out of town with the kids. This actually happened. I was with an old colleague. We'd had it. We had a three-month-old the first time around. She's down in North Carolina, and I'm with the colleague, and you know, um, my wife knows the colleague. There's nothing, you know, and I think we went back up to her brother-in-law's apartment because she was staying at her brother-in-law's, and um, it's like a fancy apartment, so it's not her apartment. Literally, like, had to get something. And I'm like having a glass of wine. Again, in my mind, I know this is all completely benign, right? But it's not her apartment. And I don't know if I'd given my wife the context, like, oh, we had to stop by the apartment before we went to, you know, dinner or whatever. And I'm just thinking, I had this moment where I was like, yeah, that wisdom came to me. I was like, 35th floor, nice ass apartment, not her apartment. And I'm like, if I fall off the balcony right now, or I die here, they're absolutely gonna think 
Like, what were you doing? Were you having an affair there? Whose apartment was that? Were you fucking her uh, sister-in-law? Like, who knows? You know what I mean? It's all those things. So anyway, that same scenario is, now let's apply that scenario if, God forbid, Sloven and his buddy were to die at my apartment, okay? I mean, this is a fucking fanciful scenario here, but can you imagine this, Bennett? Like, kid wait you know god forbid crazy shit happens in this life and i'm like trying to call eli sloven's mother oh my god this is horrific my point is you know uh can he just can they just can how does that narrative end it's like he went down to a 34 year old dude's house in harlem which, by the way, is like probably in Massachusetts, I guess, like Southie is seen by people on the outside as like this really tough, gritty place. But it's actually like, you know, been like some fucking yuppies have been there for 25 years. Harlem's a lot like that now. But the point is, again, if you're from Western Mass, sounds like he's in an and I do live in like a hundred year old building. It's like he's in a hundred year old building in Harlem. And they find him in this kid, 34-year-old guy from UMass Twitter's house who has 51,000 tweets or whatever. Like, that's fucking bad. Like, that is bad. And then, like, my name's brought through the mud for nothing because I did the right thing. So that's a very um, elaborate way of saying, I don't know, Sloven, if you if you want to put your folks on the phone with me and go over all this and you want to play them this this sort of hysterical scenario that I just laid out, I'm happy to do it. Um, but then your boy Mills like, oh, and my wife went to Williams, which is a rival of the Amherst, you know, college football, whatever. Like, I mean... Again, like, son of Amherst football coach, uh, you know, stays in house of uh, William. Like, there's just some fucking crazy shit here. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of scenarios that we could go through. And so you want to put your folks on the phone with me, like, whatever, uh, we'll, we'll talk. Um, but, you know, there's got to be a lot of above board dynamics at play. And you got to bring... Um, you got to bring like, you know, uh, some nice gifts, like for, you know, you got to bring like chocolates or some shit. I don't know. Oh, actually, no, you just asked, actually, you know what? Fuck it. I could have answered this so much quicker. If you bring a bunch of hanger wings, you can stay here for the whole weekend. And I'm talking like the biggest amount of hanger wings. You can stay here the entire weekend. Zephyr is the big one. What? Yeah. The Zephyr with honey mustard and honey barbecue. My wife would be thrilled. Bring some fries too. And a Pepe's pizza stop in new haven you can stay here as long as you like we will we will you're gonna have to sleep in the same bed as your boy hopefully that's cool um and i will ensure that you guys can crash here on whatever night you arrive um got to be like out of the house and like doing your thing early in the morning like but like here's the little thing i'm actually on paternity leave right now um i got some time for my for my work and uh i didn't even know about it my wife like found all the information and it's like you you have to take this so i'm actually off for like a good while which is dope i don't get full pay but it's really fun um and i could use help um i'm actually struggling to find child care for the games 
So that actually might be a scenario in which, like, you could help me watch the kid at the game and then free child care. Boom, you get whatever you want. But you got to put your folks on the phone. Um, real quickly, uh, the last question, Rich Tier, Fordham man, who actually is boys with my mentor. It's not a question, but you were correct in your belief this crew can get you to the tournament. The question from someone who is – I don't even know if I've ever said that, but I do believe it. The question from someone who has not seen that many games – Maybe one more shooter and defend the ball a little better away. Yeah, I mean, you haven't seen TJ Weeks. He's our best shooter. Uh, so, yeah, but agree. Um, and I think that is finally it. As the former host of the show, Cal, would say, love you, we are out. We'll do some more stuff this week. Peace.